Thank you. I don't look right a lot of places. Guys, how many of you know that the Lord provides for the deep desires of your hearts? How many of you know that as long as you're faithful to serve him and try to give your energy to him wherever you're at, he will be faithful to get you where you're supposed to be? Ah, and where I'm supposed to be is right here on the floor with all of y'all. Amen. Amen. Oh my goodness, it feels so good to be down here. Hey, if you weren't with us last week, uh, we missed you, um, but we went ahead and started a new series without, without you. I hope you'll forgive us. Um, the name of the series is called Haggai. And I don't know if you'll be able to guess it or not, but we're going to be going through verse by verse the book of, yeah, yeah, Haggai, yeah, yeah. Um, and last week we got, uh, we got really far, so it's a lot of ground to be able to cover without you. We read the first two verses uh, of chapter one, um, and we, we, we talked about how the nation of Israel is coming out of their collective dark night of the soul. And for a lot of us, it began a time of reflecting on how many of us may be considering uh, our lives in the middle of the dark night of the soul. Or maybe you have come out of it, or maybe you haven't gotten there yet, but inevitably at some point there's going to be a time where the comforts and the joys of your faith that once seemed so accessible to you suddenly seem very, very distant. And yet... In the middle of the dark night of the soul, God has not lost track of you. God is faithful to continue to speak to you. And God still has significant purpose for your life. So that's really all we covered. If you wish to go back and listen to it, you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, YouTube, um, What's the one with Google? Google Podcasts or something like that. We're on there too. Um, or you can just go to our website uh, or our social media pages. You'll catch us on, on all of those. But for this morning, for the sake of our time together, I'm going to ask that you join me again in the book of Haggai. We're going to continue in chapter 1. I'll read the first two verses that we uh, read last week just for the sake of context, and then we will continue with a few more verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and join me in the book of Haggai. It's an, it's an Old Testament prophet. It's a minor prophet, so it's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you don't, that's okay. Um, it'll be right up here on the screen for you. So this is Haggai chapter 1. We'll go ahead and start our reading in verse 1 and go from there. Scripture says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and also to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, hello, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. We'll round it out with verse 12. It says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. You know the trick, right? I was just talking about this with my sister-in-law yesterday, actually. Um, The trick where a parent or a guardian or a grandparent or maybe even to this day your spouse says, hey, uh, I'm going to leave the house for a little while. But when I get back, make sure you have done this, this, and this. And of course, we react and we're like, I got you. No problem. I will have it all done by the time you get back. But just so I know, to ease my own heart, um, would you give me a call when you're on the way? Because what are we about to do? We're about to, we're about to wait a little while. You know, yeah, I'm gonna get those things done, but also there's some other things I wanna do in the meantime while you're gone. And then when you call me and say, hey, I'm up the road, that will be my cue to get up and quickly get done all of the things that you told me that I need to get done. It's not that I don't plan on doing it. It's that I'm going to wait until I feel it's in my best interest to urgently get it done. And that's fine when we're kids, yeah. isn't it? Yes, sir. I mean, not really, right? Because then inevitably there's something that doesn't get done and they walk in and, and they're like, did you do everything I asked? They don't see the two things that you did do. They see the one thing that you didn't do almost immediately. And they ask you, what have you been doing this entire time that I've been gone? And that's fine when we're kids. The consequences, although they may seem harsh to us as kids, are albeit menial when it comes to the grand scheme of eternity. But when we take that posture later in life, the consequences are much more significant. People doing that to us is heartbreaking. When we see close relatives to us, when we see people whose friendship means a whole lot to us, and it always has, and it has for a really, really long time, 
And when we hear the common narrative that our friends and family give us that know better on how to live their lives, and they give us this common narrative of, I'll get to it. No, I know, I know, I know. I know the way that I've been living is not wholly and acceptable to him, but I think that someday I'll get to a point of living right. Hey, man, chill out on me. I'm in college. There's plenty of time after this to get my life right. For now, I just want to have fun. Until you realize that the habits that you build now are the habits that you take into adulthood with you, but today's not about you, don't worry. No, the consequences are a lot more significant. It's a similar situation that I believe the Israelites find themselves in now, right? They've been recently released from exile as we covered plenty plenty last week. And they're allowed to go back into, the, into Jerusalem. They're allowed to go back into their cultural capital. They're allowed to go back into the land that was promised to them long ago, but then they blew it and then God undid it and then some other stuff happened and now they're allowed, now they're allowed to return. And when they get there, they know that the, that the expectation is for them to clean up the temple. See, the house that they specifically built to show God's incredible nature, the house that they specifically built for God to dwell in, the house that they specifically built to show the world that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do, that house lies in ruins. It's been destructed. It's been destroyed. If the common person were to walk through Jerusalem past the temple, they would look at it and say, what used to be there? And then keep going. How many places in our lives are people walking by and saying, what used to be there? Israel was expected when they got back to rebuild or to at least build what God had asked them to over and over and over. And it wasn't about the physical building anymore. It was about the kingdom. God instructs over and over and over, build the kingdom. And yet when Israel got there, they elected to build their own stuff First, sometimes when things in our lives are destroyed, we put off putting them back together, don't we? Yes, sir. Sometimes when things in our lives are destroyed, we choose to rebuild what offers us comfort first before knowing what we ought to. Sometimes it's easy for us to put many things as a priority over the things of God. It's easy. We're busy. The world is accessible to us through the device that's in our palms. It's easy to do Literally anything else other than 
the hard transformative things that God asks us to do. God comes at the Israelites with a little sarcasm. And passages like this bring me joy because I'm very sarcastic, to a fault even. And so seeing God invoke sarcasm feels good to me. Feels like God gave me that. So basically, instead of I'm sorry, what I'm saying is you're welcome for showing you the image of God. <laughs> wow. God says, oh, you people are saying it's not time to rebuild the temple. Oh, it's not time to rebuild the temple. Silly me, silly God. It's not time, guys. It's not time. It's not time to rebuild the temple. Oh, 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 oh. But it is time to rebuild your house. It's not time to rebuild my house. It's time to rebuild your house, your paneled house. In other words, you know, he's not being too harsh on them. Like, well, yeah, let them get four walls and a quick roof up so they have a safe place to sleep before they rebuild. No, 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 no. These are paneled. In other words, these are, they are adding elegance to their home at this point. It's not just a quick four walls and a quick little roof from the rain, which by the way, we can see by the fact that it's a drought ain't coming. They're adding elegance to their house. They're gathering materials. They're shaping things. They're decorating the insides, the outsides. They're building things to give the appearance of wealth or health. They are working hard at all the little things to make their house look good. Meanwhile, God's house lies in ruins. And I have to imagine, maybe the lesson for me is the measure or, or, or the length at which God was graceful until he got sarcastic. Maybe that's what I need to take away. Because when you read all of the Old Testament, this is the same trap that Israel gets themselves in over and over and over in which they tend to build something else. Let me say it again anything else before they do what God has asked them to do. They built statues and idols and little figurines of gods they didn't even believe in before their neighbor told them that I think this might be true before they got to what God was telling them to do. They, they built a whole government rather than getting to what God told them to do. They found it easier to name a king and appoint political officials than it was for them to lean into the voice of God. I know somebody in here just broke out in a sweat. They put their wealth, their treasure accumulating riches for their empire before what God was asking them to do. I think of the picture in Aladdin, because I have 
three daughters that are that age where that's what we watch right now. Disney movies. Where the Cave of Wonders tells Aladdin and Abu, go in and get the lamp because that's yours. But don't touch anything else. And yet, Abu cannot help himself. And all of us are like, oh, Abu. And yet we forget the fact that the command to us to build God's kingdom came long before that shiny jewel we've been reaching for. We, we, we forget that the command to, to go and to make disciples came long before whatever that goal is that we've set for ourselves currently. My kids, my kids have a messy bedroom. I can relate to KT and Caleb on that. My kids have a messy bedroom, and oftentimes, my wife will tell them, because I don't go in there, it's too messy. My wife will tell them, before we go somewhere, you need to clean that room. Before we go anywhere, you need to clean that room. Now, here's the thing. We're not doing that. We're not telling our kids that to ruin the fun that they have before we go wherever we're trying to go. The reality is, I know where we're going is more fun than you're currently having. I know that we're going to have so much fun there that we're not going to get back until late. And we're going to get back so late that it'll be all the energy my kids can muster and all the grace and patience my wife and I can access to get you when we get home to put your shoes where they belong, brush your teeth, go to the bathroom, put jammies on, and get to bed. It'll take everything within us to get that done. So I'm not telling you to clean your room to ruin your day or ruin your fun. I'm telling you to clean your room because I know when you get home, what you're going to need to do is spend what little energy you have left doing these things and getting in bed. And then I also know that you're going to be tired when you wake up in the morning. So having a clean room is going to help you pick out an outfit and for our morning routines to go much smoother in the morning. So essentially what I'm asking you to do is not to ruin your day, is not to kill your fun, is not to make you do hard work that you're not capable of. It's because I know what's coming up. I know that this is what's best for you as we move forward. And I'm trying to make this process as smooth and as fruitful as possible moving forward. Yes, sir. But they don't ever clean their room. And it's frustrating, but if we're honest, it's the same trap we fall into. Same trap for Sarah and Kaylee, the same trap for Israel. It's the same trap we fall into often, the idea that we know what God has asked of us. And yet we pursue what's right or immediately beneficial in our own eyes. We know the truth that God has presented to us. 
And yet we take our time getting around to making it actually take root in our lives. God's command for our lives, his instructions for the way that we're able to live and what he ultimately wants us building came long, long, long before the expectations we set for ourselves. God's command to build his kingdom came way before you had a job. God's command to build his kingdom came long before you had a financial goal in mind. God's command to build his kingdom came long before you had all those relationships that were important to you investing in. God's command to build his kingdom came long before you were hurt. God's command to build his kingdom came long before you experienced tragedy in your life. God's command to build his kingdom came long before you were ever sitting in the cynical seat you're sitting in today. Long before any of those things were a reality, God set before us the accessibility of relationship with him and the expectation we would be a part of the construction of his kingdom. So let me ask you, what are you building before God's kingdom? What is it that you are so focused and so worried on constructing before it even crosses your mind to build the things that God has put in front of you? Why is it that in this process of deconstruction or demolition, it has been more important to you to build walls of comfort than it is to continue to build his kingdom? Why hadn't the thought occurred to us before right now that perhaps it is possible and will even be supported in focusing on building God's kingdom first, even before our own walls of comfort were built up. Amen. And then God, as if that jolt wasn't enough, he kind of twists it a little bit. He says, consider how you fared. Look at how you've done. You've built all this stuff before you got to work on my house and look how that has worked out for you. That seems harsh, but it's real. If you really want to know how in control God is, consider how you've done in your life without him. Well, I've done okay financially. Yeah, but you're depressed. You really want to know how in control God is. Look at how you've done in your life without him. See, the Israelites can plant and plant and plant and plant. They can work and work and work and work on crops. But at the end of the day, 
as much effort as you put into these crops, are you not still a little dependent on the weather? At the end of the day, are you not still a little dependent on the climate around you? At the end of the day, are you not still a little dependent on something else acting on the work that you've put in to bring it to prosperity? How about in athletics? You can practice and practice and practice and practice. You can game plan. You can game plan. You can execute. You can work out every play flawlessly. But at the end of the game, when there's just a few seconds left, are you not at least a little dependent on a few things going your way? Are you not at least a little dependent on somebody else seeing things your way? By withholding, we read the dew of the morning or the rain altogether. That's what God is saying in this text. God is reducing the human pride and the self-sufficiency. He said, yeah, you can do all you want with these seeds to get these grapes popping. But if you don't have the morning dew, then the heat, even in the middle of the night, will cause the fruit to wither and die. You can do all you want to plant in perfect rows, perfectly spaced, and to do all you can to make sure that the environment around the crop is perfect. But if that rain never comes, you're not going to see the harvest. When you get into when you get into the Hebrew of this text, you find the author using a little play on words. See, the word drought and the word ruin come from the same root. They are one tiny letter difference, directly linking the idea that the drought you are experiencing is directly linked to the state of my house in your life. If you are experiencing a drought, if nothing you do seems to come to fruition, the link that Haggai is making here is because perhaps your priorities have gotten mixed up and it's because you've started worrying more so about your own comforts than building what God has asked you to build. In other words, God is telling the Israelites, if you do not put in the work to build my kingdom, do not expect me to put in the work to build your success. The ESV calls this fruitless prosperity. You may be building and building and building and building, but what you're building is not eternal. It may give the appearance of being real nice, but it's not going to last. 
had a conversation with somebody recently. They were telling me that, they were sharing with me their story, and they were telling me that it's crazy. It's like almost all I ever did, I experienced the earthly measure of success in, but did not experience fulfillment in. I played football, not me, them. I played football. I wanted to be great at football. I was so good in high school that I earned an athletic scholarship in college. But that didn't fill me up. I wanted to find means of making money. I found means of making more than enough money, but that didn't fill me up. I was in another room recently of, we'll call them business professionals, going through a training that was not uh, tagged with, a, with, with an inherently Christian tag. And I shared with that room that working so hard to build up and give the appearance of success rather than doing the hard not seen publicly private work of building yourself first will cause whatever you're trying to build to crumble. I got to share with them that a teacher that I follow very closely with my whole life shares it this way. It would be like building a house on the sand. The waves will come, the winds will blow, and the house will not stand. But he who builds their house on a firm foundation, he who builds their house on the rock, the storms will come, the winds will blow, the waves will crash, and that house will stand. Last summer, I remember listening to Rachel be so disappointed with the way things were growing around our house. And I remember the next time that I was outside with the kids, they're playing in the driveway, and I remember looking around our house thinking, what's she complaining about? Look at all these things growing. They're real tall. This one right here. I was like, Rach, come look at this one. This one's as tall as me. What's this one? She said, that's a weed. I said, well, we got to call somebody. It looked real impressive. It's as big as me. Yes, sir. Uh, scripture is filled with instruction on how we can live lives that actually build the kingdom. Scripture is also filled with warning on what happens to us if we focus more on building the appearance of wealth and everything being okay, rather than doing what God is going to do, who is the ultimate sovereign provider who actually can make everything okay. What weeds need cut, what weeds need cut in your life so that you can focus on what God is actually asking you to build. What seeds are you giving too much water to that God didn't ask you to plant? 
What are the things that are taking up all of your time and your thought energy that God did not tell you to put before him? Then Haggai does something interesting. He writes that the remnant obeyed and the people feared the Lord. Haggai calls the people the remnant, meaning what's left over from Israel after this exile in Babylon. By him calling them the remnant, he's invoking the imagery found in the teachings of Isaiah where Isaiah wrote that even though the Israelites are in exile now, someday a remnant would return. A remnant of what once was will someday return. And what's so interesting about that is the word that Isaiah uses for return is the same word elsewhere in Hebrew we use for repent. Someday, a remnant would repent. Haggai was using this imagery to call the Israelites to repentance. To say, you are the remnant. You are what's promised. Can't you see the way that God has designed for your life? And this is your chance to turn away from your apathy and your indifference. This is your way of as you slowly and casually walk apathetically to be woken up by the voice of God, to turn around and go away from your practical atheism. The voice of God as evidence in the fact that it says they after that feared the Lord. The voice of God shook them out of their hates. The reality is that not all will survive the destruction of this world. Let me say it differently. Not everyone's faith will, will survive the destruction of this world. Not everyone's faith right now is, survive, is surviving our socio-political climate. Not everyone's faith is surviving the exclusivity that people put on belonging to the church. Not everyone's faith is surviving this wave of culture. And if you don't hear anything else that I say, I want you to hear this right here. Even if that is true, the voice of God is nonetheless faithful to continue to try and interrupt and shake us from our apathy and from our indifference. Even in the midst of the screaming and the yelling, both on social media and practically in our lives, 
the voice of God is faithful to call out to shake us from our practical atheism, from our godless life. The voice of God is faithful to shake us from our hates. The question remains, are we faithful to try and hear it? I'm going to close with this. Last thing I'm going to say and then I'm out your way. Jesus tells the story in Matthew chapter 21. Tells the story of two sons. Says the father's got two boys. He says to the older one, go out and work in the vineyard. Go out and harvest. Go out and produce fruit. Go out and be fruitful. Go out and multiply the crops. This isn't ringing a bell with anybody. He says, go out and work in the vineyard. Son says, nah, I ain't going. But then a little bit later, he changes his mind, and he goes out and he works. Then he says, the second son, the younger son, Jesus says, younger son, go out and work in the vineyard. Go out and bear much fruit. Go out into the crops and harvests. And the second son says, I will go. I'm going to go work. I'm going to go get that harvest. Here I am. I'm going. And then he doesn't go. Jesus asked the question, which son did the will of their father? Just like you did, I imagine it internally because you didn't give me a response. The first one. The first one. The son who said, I won't go. But then came to himself and went anyway. Not the son who swore they were going. Wanted to give the appearance of being willing to do the will of the father. But then didn't go. Jesus says, the same is true for you. He said this to religious teachers. He said this to people who thought they knew God well, better than anyone else. He said, let me tell you this, corrupt tax collectors, people who, are, who steal money from their own people and prostitutes will inherit the kingdom of God before you. Because even though at some point in their life, they made a conscious decision to say, God, thank you for making me, but no thank you for telling me on telling me how to live my life. At some point, the voice of God interrupted and they changed their mind. But you, You who claims to press into the voice of God, but spend more time building your own clout and your own followers than the will of your Father, kingdom's not for you. It is not too late to change direction. I know there are people in here 
who believe themselves to be faithful followers of Jesus. But you have spent a whole lot of time, too much time, building what you want and what's right in your own eyes and what you perceive to be best for the family around you than actually doing the will of the Father or even spending time to hear it. And I also know that there are people in here who were brought here against their will because somebody guilted you into being here or because something happened this week that made you think, I don't know, maybe I'll give it another shot. And you've never considered giving your life to God in a way that says, God, use me to build what you want, not what I want. And to both of you, I need you to hear me say that it's not too late. It's never too late. The demons of hell may be dragging us with firm grips into the darkness. And it's not too late to cry out with a posture of repentance for Christ to save you. You may have gone far down this road of building a comfort that is not from the Lord. And you have no idea how you even get back. It is not too late to call out to Christ with a posture of repentance to get you back. It is the will of God for us to turn away from our apathy. For us to acknowledge that the voice of God is calling to me Because the creator of all things has a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose for my life. And what the Lord really wants, what he really, really wants is to see a remnant of his family gather together and work collectively to build his kingdom. Because his kingdom stands for hope and love and victory amidst a fallen world. The people of our city need to see it. But the people of God need to build it. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by your sovereignty. We accept that you are in control of all things capable of flourishing or destroying. God, collectively, we repent of the things that we have put before the construction of your kingdom. 
Lord, we ask forgiveness for the ways we have worked to add elegance to our own lives before we made our offering to your will and to your kingdom. Lord, we ask that by the strength and the courage that comes with the acceptance of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we would be given the strength to turn away from our apathy, to turn away from the other things that we've focused more on. And God, I pray that we would continue to be drawn towards your will. Because, Lord, the most comforting, the most loving, the most insightful, the most powerful place we can be is in the center of God's will. Lord, we open our lives to let you place us there. by the sacrifice and the name that makes it all possible, we pray. That is Jesus. All who believe say, bless up.